All right, we are in uh, Genesis chapter 46 today. Uh, the last uh, couple of weeks we were going through Genesis 45. Uh, and uh, last week we were, we were looking at the last part of the chapter where uh, Joseph's brothers prepare for their trip back home from Egypt. And they're sent off uh, by Pharaoh and by Joseph to go home and to get their father and their families and to come back to Egypt. And, uh, and we also looked, of course, there at the end where the brothers arrive home and explain to uh, their father that, that Joseph is still alive. And we talked about Jacob's response to that. And today we will pick up the story in chapter 46 uh, with Jacob actually now setting out for uh, Egypt. And uh, the cha- chapter 46 uh, contains the story of his departure from Canaan for Egypt. And then uh, a large part of the chapter is uh, what's technically a genealogy, and we'll talk about that, but it's the list of the names of the people who went to Egypt with Jacob and some other names as well. And we'll talk about that some and the significance of those names. Well, today we'll just do the first part of the chapter, his departure from Canaan and part of that genealogy. And then next week, hopefully, uh, if all goes well today, next week we will talk about the uh, some more about the genealogy. And then we'll talk about his arrival in Egypt. So that's kind of the plan. But before we do that, let's go back like we usually do and think through the things that we talked about last week and kind of refresh our minds. What do you remember that we uh, that we talked about last week in chapter 45? And I think we I think we started in uh, last week. I think we started in uh, uh, <clears throat> verse 16. Yeah, we started in verse 16 down through the end of the chapter. So if you look down through those verses, you can you can prime your Alzheimer-ridden mind with what we talked about last week and, and refresh the rest of our minds. But. Not that they had a whole lot of choice for Pharaoh did whatever he wanted to do, but I'm wondering what the Egyptians think when the whole Hebrews comes back to their country. Well, we'll get to that next week. <laughs> yeah. There, there, there is an interesting issue about that when they arrive. So we'll talk about that next week, assuming we get uh, as much done this week as I hope to. There's a lot of emphasis on the wagons and military vehicles and Pharaoh himself had to leave those. And Jacob wouldn't believe anything about Joseph when he saw the wagons. Yeah. Yeah. For some reason, that helped confirm that. Okay, we we talked about the wagons and uh, as Dave mentions, uh, uh, I conclude uh, from just the evidence of the text that they appear to be (coughs) Uh, pretty significant wagons and it needed apparently the Pharaoh's release for them to be able to go in the hands of foreigners into a foreign land. And so I, I assume that they were some kind of military equipment that Egypt uh, had and used and would have been reluctant to let go outside of the land. And, and it's those, it seems to be that there are two things that kind of trigger faith in Jacob uh, when he's when he's told about his son, there are two things that kind of bring him to a point of faith that, that Joseph really is still alive. And one of them is he sees the wagons 
and and just seeing those wagons, he recognizes what well, Joseph really is this powerful, high up feet, uh, uh, character in in the Egyptian regime. So, what else? Okay. So like that would be like Joseph must have thought very long and hard about what to say to Dad. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, it's it's probably not something he just came off the top of his head. He probably thought, you know, what what am I what am I what am I gonna send back to Dad? What message am I gonna send back to Dad? He also cautioned them don't quarrel over the way back. Okay. Why would that have been necessary? Well it's got it all out in front now, yeah. All the recriminations and stuff. Yeah. yeah, it's over with. That's what forgiveness does, doesn't it? Forgiveness takes away the cause or the reason of for recriminations. When we're forgiven, when others are forgiven, then we don't need to point a finger at one another. So, what else? One of the things that's kind of curious, it's not mentioned in the text at all, and we didn't talk about it because it's not really a big point, but except Joseph was a father to Pharaoh, and it kind of makes you wonder, I wonder how old Pharaoh was. Because some of those guys were really young. Mm-hmm. Uh, but maybe he may have actually been older than Pharaoh. I'm not sure what bearing that would have had on the story. Yeah, actually, MacArthur, I think, makes a point that that uh, that Pharaoh was apparently fairly young. Uh, that, of course, would be predicated on the assumption that we know the exact dates uh, in which these events occur. And I'm not quite as confident as MacArthur is that we know those dates. But but if he's right in that, then there's a possibility that, in fact, Pharaoh was uh, fairly young, that this was a new Pharaoh and, and, and that he was fairly young. Which is kind of odd because they... Earlier in the chapter, they called Joseph a Hebrew youth. So you think, okay, so, but he's 30, you know, whatever. So yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. More interesting, though, to the point what you asked is uh, the uh, type of Joseph being of Christ mm-hmm. and all the different elements here that we talked about that uh, was very encouraging to me to think about um, the sacrifice that Joseph made and and then the uh, all the I can't even remember all the different elements, uh, the, the parts of the. Well, you probably remember. Well, let's ask the rest. What do you guys remember? We did talk about that. That this is this story in many ways parallels or is a is a is a type of the gospel in many respects. So, so what are some of the things we mentioned? Where the story, how the story represents to us the gospel message. Okay, Joseph is the one who, through his suffering, acts as the redeemer of his brothers. That's obviously the, 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 perhaps the most conspicuous way in which Joseph is a type of Christ. And he, through his suffering, he, he redeems his brother and his family, etc. What else? Joseph sends his brothers back to, to 
Okay, okay, to take that message back and that invitation back to come to Egypt, he doesn't go. He's the, he's the one who, through his suffering, has redeemed the family, but he is not the one who goes. He sends the ones who are redeemed. He sends the brothers back. That's what Christ did, Matthew tw- chapter 28. You know, and when, when he's finally accomplished everything, what does Christ do? He doesn't say, well, okay, now let's get busy, guys, and let's, you know, I need to get out and get this message out. But he says, I'm going to the Father. It's your job, guys, to get this message out. So that's another interesting parallel. What else? Take that a step further. It was a hard sell. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. When they get back to Jacob, what is Jacob's response? He doesn't believe. Okay. It's too incredible. It's too. Uh, it's too hard to believe, and 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 so what's not only does he not believe, but what is what's the response in his heart? Well, what does it say? Well, that was my spin on it. Yeah, yeah, but his heart fainted, or he was stunned, and that's and that is. That is, the re- that is the response within us when we don't believe the gospel, isn't it? Our hearts grow cold and, and grow faint because we don't believe. Actually, it's not, just a, it's not just a feature of people who don't believe the gospel. It's also a feature in the hearts of believers when we don't believe the promises of God. And when we don't believe His Word, our hearts grow cold and hard and indifferent. So there was a coldness or a stunness or a, a, a weakness or a faintness in his heart because he didn't believe. What was it then that prompted him to believe? Okay, when he saw the wagons and one other thing. He heard Joseph's words. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Okay, so Joseph, uh, Joseph's words are given uh, to, uh, to Jacob and as he hears, as he hears this message from Jacob, faith is actuated in his heart, and he comes to believe. And so, that is another another parallel. What are any others that you can think of? The, the gifts of the light are like the down payment of the spirit. Okay, okay, and that was an analogy you drew. And and one of the gifts in particular was what? The garments, the clothes, and what's significant about those? What is significant about Joseph giving garments to his brothers? Well, I think there's two. If you carry the, the type further, then we all, by faith, receive new garments. Because our old garments need to be thrown away. Okay. Done away with. Okay. But the other part has to do with Joseph and his deal with all the garments where he, he, his garments were stripped from him multiple times and then finally he got garments given to him and so he pass that on to his family. Okay. And and the striking thing is here he is giving garments to the very ones who have stripped from him his cloak of many colors. So he was the he was the one who was victimized by them and had his garments stripped from him and he turns around and he presents to them these uh, these very special garments that he gives to them in Egypt and that's of course a parallel of what Christ has done for us. We are the ones who stripped him and hung him upon a cross and he has reciprocated by giving us uh, garments of righteousness, which we will wear on that special occasion of the wedding supper of the Lamb. So there's all kinds of parallels in this passage, aren't there, uh, that we can draw? Okay, and 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 Pharaoh's uh, 
Pharaoh's invitation says, you come, you don't need to bring anything because I'm going to, uh, I'm going to uh, provide everything you need. I'm going to invite, provide you with the best of the land and the fat of the land to eat so you don't need to bring anything with you. Now, that particular parallel uh, worked very well for our lesson last week. We'll see this week uh, that uh, as with most parallels and types in scriptures, they have limitations. And so as we get into the passage this week, we'll see uh, that actually Jacob does something entirely different and that has significance. So, uh, so that parallel, particular parallel that we used last week was good for last week's uh, uh, the lessons we were drawing last week, but uh, this week we'll see, look at it from a little different perspective. Anything else you'd like to mention before we go on? It was also unconditional. As far as everything his brothers had done to him, it's... Yes. Go get dead and come home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, if there's there's no condition on it. There's no stipulation on it. It's and and that's because they are now covered by the forgiveness that Joseph has given to them. Yeah. Well, let's pick up the story then in chapter 46, and and this passage, like the ones we've been through, are really extreme. It's extremely rich and full of significance, and also causes us to kind of go back and think about a lot of other things we've already talked about. In Genesis, as we're getting closer to the end of Genesis, I keep thinking about uh, how do we, you know, how do we kind of remember all this stuff we've talked about for the last nearly three years now as we've been going through the book of Genesis. And and so uh, chapter 46 gives us a little bit of an opportunity to review some of the things that we have encountered along the along the way in the story. Uh, in the book of Genesis, but it begins in chapter 46, verse one, it says, so Israel set out with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. He said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. For I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt and I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will close your eyes. Then Jacob arose from Beersheba and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob and their little ones and their wives in the wagons which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. And they took their livestock and their property, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan. And they came to Egypt, Jacob and all his descendants with him, his sons and his grandsons with him, his daughters and his granddaughters and all his descendants. He brought with him to Egypt. Now, these are the names of the sons of Israel, Jacob and his sons who went to Egypt. Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, the sons of Reuben, Hanak and Palu and Hezron and Carmi, the sons of Simeon, Jamil and Jamin and Ohad and Jacob and Zohar and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman, the sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath and Merari, the sons of Judah, Er and Onan and Shelah and Perez and Zerah. But Er and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Peraz were Hezron and Hamel. The sons of Issachar, Tola and Puva and Iob and Shimron. 
the sons of Zebulun, Sarad, Elon, and Jaleel. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Paden Aram, with his daughter Dinah. All his sons and his daughters numbered thirty-three. The sons of Gad, Ziphion, and Hage, and Shuni, and Esbon, and Eri, and Eradi, and Areli. The sons of Asher, Emna, and Ishva, and Ishvi, and Bariah, and their sister Sarah. And the sons of Bariah, Heber, and Malkiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to his daughter Leah, and she bore to Jacob these 16 persons. We'll stop in the middle of that genealogy uh, with just Leah and Leah's handmaid uh, and, their, and their descendants or their children, uh, and we'll pick up the rest of it later. Uh, but going back to uh, verse 1, we find Israel now, he is determined, he, is, he has come to a point of, of believing that Joseph is alive and he's decided that he will go and see Joseph before he dies, as he says there at the end of chapter 45. So in chapter 46, he sets out, it says, with all that he had. And notice it says, so Israel set out. Now, one of the things that's interesting about this passage over these next few verses, you'll notice that his name kind of flip-flops back and forth and sometimes he's called Israel and sometimes he's called Jacob. Okay? Now, uh, there, there's probably significance into the, when he's called Israel and when he's called Jacob throughout the story. Uh, he, was, he was, of course, born. When he was born, he was given the name Jacob, right? And what does that name mean? Supplanter, okay? So this is the name of his birth, and it has this name, uh, this idea of supplanting, and the reason was because he came out hanging on to his brother Esau's heel, as, and, and so he's considered to be the supplanter, and that tells us some things about his character, or whatever, his, his uh, temperament and his personality throughout his, uh, particularly his early life. And we see it carried out in the way that he, he, uh, he tries to get the birthright from his brother. He tries to get the blessing from his brother, etc. Um, so the name Jacob, uh, when we think of Jacob, it, it kind of represents just the man Jacob. Kind of the, if you want, if you, if, if, if you think of it this way, kind of the earthly man Jacob. Okay, uh, And so it's how we would view him just as an ordinary, normal, natural man, okay? And it also carries with it that connotation of the supplanter. So it kind of has a dual sense of just the, the just kind of the ordinary human individual, nothing outstanding about him. He's just an average person, and he has also these, uh, these sinful characteristics or qualities in his life that come out in, in the name. And so that's the name Jacob. Where does this name Israel come from? Okay, God gave it to him. When did God give it to him? Okay, the first time is when he wrestled with God at the river Jabbok at Peniel. Okay, he encounters God at Peniel. He wrestles with God all night long. He refuses to let God go until he gets a blessing. And so then God finally blesses him and gives him the name Israel. So the name Israel then is God's name for Jacob. It's the name that God gives to him 
And it, and and do you remember what it means? What does the name Israel mean? Okay, striving with God or one who wrestles with God. God gave him that name after he wrestled with God all night. So it's easy to remember the meaning of the name Israel is he wrestled with God or one who wrestles with God and prevails. Okay, so he's given that name at Peniel. A little bit later, uh, sometime later, Jacob arrives back at Bethel for the second time and he has another encounter with God at Bethel. And once again, God reiterates, your name is Israel. I'm naming you Israel. And he goes on to give him these great promises that he gives him there at, uh, at his second encounter at Bethel. And so he has this name Israel and the name Israel uh, means uh, one who wrestles with God and prevails. And the idea there, of course, uh, is that is that the name Israel then represents Jacob as the man blessed of God. Jacob as the man who 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 has these blessings and these promises from God. And so so Israel is, in a sense, kind of Jacob's spiritual name. And it carries with it the sense or the idea of 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 uh, not only the blessing that he has, but that he is the that he is a patriarch. That from him this entire nation is going to come. Okay, and so in the history of the of uh, the history of God's people down through the Old Testament, what are the God's people called throughout the Old Testament? Okay, the sons of Israel or the Israelites, okay? You notice they're not called the Jacobites, right? They're called the Israelites. They're called the sons of Israel in reference to this spiritual dimension of the man. Okay. Now, what's fascinating to me about this passage is how as you go through the story, the names are used back and forth. And so as we begin the story, it tells us that Israel set out to come to Beersheba and that God spoke to Israel. Okay, and so it seems like the emphasis here is on the man as the patriarch, the man as the uh, as uh, as the father of this great nation that is going to come uh, from his loins. Okay, and so that seems to be the emphasis uh, as as we set out. So he sets out and and as he sets out, what does he take with him? He takes all that he has. Okay. Now, something else that's interesting about this passage, the first thing is the use of the name Israel and Jacob. The second thing that's interesting about this passage we're looking at today is how much the passage emphasizes he took everything with him. He took everything. He took all of his possessions. He took his flocks. He took his herds. He took everything that they had acquired in Canaan. It says it repeatedly in the chapter. And also it stresses that he took all of his descendants. Okay. And over and over again, it stresses he took all of his descendants. And then it goes to laborious detail to tell us the names of all of these descendants who went with him down in Egypt. So, so this is something that's important and we'll reflect on this as we go. But he... He, he gets up from presumably Hebron. It doesn't say for certain. Most commentators assume that he is at Hebron or this is the Oaks of Mamre. Uh, this is the place, of course, where uh, Abraham spent a good deal of his life. It's the place in Genesis, uh, 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 earlier in Genesis, 
when uh, Abraham, uh, when God is coming to judge Sodom and Gomorrah and he comes and he first appears to Abraham, that was at the Oaks of Mamre or that was at, at Hebron. Uh, so we know it's very, it was very close. It's right there in the, you know, what would be just south southwest of what is now the Dead Sea. Uh, so he could actually see the smoke from the burning of Sodom and Gomorrah from the Oaks of Mamre or from Hebron. So that is apparently where... Uh, 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 where Jacob is at this particular point where he's leaving from. This is incidentally the place where Joseph left from uh, when he went to find his brothers and ultimately then was sold into slavery. So, presumably he's leaving from Hebron. We don't know that for absolute certain because the text does not say it. But we do know where he first went when he leaves. As he leaves and he heads out to go to Egypt, where does he go? He goes to Beersheba. Okay, now Beersheba is a Beersheba is a is an important place in this whole history of the patriarchs, right? You're going, well, I don't remember, <laughs> but it really is. Okay, and and in fact, it was an important place to Abraham. Remember when we first clear back in chapter twelve when we studied about Abraham coming down to Canaan. For the first time, coming to the promised land, he made three stops as he as he entered into the promised land. He made three stops. And as we studied that and we've talked about it several times, each one of those three stops has significance. OK, he came first and he stopped at Shechem. And at Shechem, he uh, he uh, made offerings to the Lord and God spoke to him and God promised in the land. And as we study the significance of of Shechem in the history of the uh, of the people of the sons of Israel, we came to understand that Shechem is a place of decision. It's a place of commitment. Shechem is the first place Abraham comes. It's the place where he finally says, this is home and I'm turning my back on Herod. I'm turning my back on all that that's behind me. And this is now my home. It's the place of commitment and decision. And then he leaves from there and he goes down to a place that says east of Bethel. And Bethel comes to represent in the history of the patriarchs, comes to represent that place of increased commitment to God. And Abraham comes uh, first to Shechem, the place of commitment, then he comes to Bethel, and Bethel is the place of a deeper walk or a deeper relationship with God. And it says of Abraham when he came to Bethel that he called upon the name of the Lord. That's the first time we hear of Abraham calling upon the name of the Lord. And so uh, he calls upon the name of the Lord at Bethel and God speaks to him at Bethel and actually he has another encounter with God at Bethel after his uh, sojourn in Egypt. And so Bethel becomes significant as a place of, of a deeper walk with God and a recommitment with, to God. And then he goes from Bethel and he travels on down toward the Negev. And we find out as we go on through uh, the narrative, we find out that that's kind of a, a euphemism for Beersheba. So he comes to Beersheba and Beersheba is the place where Abraham spends, though he is a sojourner in Egypt and spends a lot of time at Hebron or the Oaks of Mamre. Uh, Beersheba is a place where Abraham spent a great deal of the 25 years that he waited for that son to be born that God had promised him. So Beersheba comes to represent for us the place of abiding, faithfully waiting on the fulfilling, fulfillment of the promises of God. And so that is the, that's one of the significance of Beersheba. And it is in Beersheba where, once again, we are told that Abraham called upon the name of the Lord. And so uh, it's also a place where Abraham had some conflict with some of the people of the land. And that conflict got resolved there. And, 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 uh, 
and uh, Abraham actually uh, kind of claims that as his own, although he doesn't really own any land in the promised land. He kind of claims this land as his own, and this is kind of his token purchase, if you will, is Beersheba. Then later in the redemptive story, Isaac is born at Beersheba. It's his birthplace. And uh, later in Isaac's sojourning, he comes back to Beersheba and he has a conflict with the people of Gerar. And they keep trying to dig. He keeps digging wells and they keep uh, stealing his wells from him. And he, end up, he ends up back at Beersheba. And at Beersheba, he goes into negotiations uh, with the king of Gerar. And they reach an agreement and they decide, OK, you can have Beersheba. That's yours. And so then uh, uh, Isaac digs a well there. And he, so he has a well to provide for his flocks and he builds an altar there. And on that altar, he worships God at Beersheba. Now, Beersheba, as I said, is the furthest south in the, land, in the promised land. When you leave Beersheba, you're leaving the promised land. Okay, so this is the place now to which Jacob comes. 130 years of age. He's been sojourning his whole life. And now he's leaving the land of promise and he comes to Beersheba. And what does he do when he comes to Beersheba? Okay, he makes sacrifices to whom? The God of his father. Okay, so so once again, this idea of the continuity of worship, the continuity of from generation to generation, they are worshiping this one true God. Okay, and so he comes and he offers sacrifices to God. Now, the question that arises in our minds would be, why does Jacob stop at Beersheba? And why does he offer sacrifices? What's going on in Jacob's mind and in Jacob's heart as he comes to Beersheba? One of the things as we look at this story of Beersheba is it's very difficult to miss the parallels between Jacob's experience here at Beersheba and his first experience at Bethel. Now, you remember when Jacob first uh, stole the blessing uh, from his uh, from his brother uh, Esau, uh, what was Esau's response? I'm going to kill you. <laughs> I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill that brother of mine. And his mother hears about it, uh, and so uh, she uh, she uh, uh, manages to get Jacob to flee. And so Jacob flees ostensibly to go find a wife in Haran from the, their relatives in Haran. Not ostensibly, that really was part of the purpose. But he's fleeing as a fugitive. He's running as a fugitive from Beersheba. He's running as a fugitive and he gets to Bethel. And what happens at Bethel? Okay, he has a vision or he has a dream. And that's the famous dream you always... Got you know they taught, told you about in Sunday school when you were a little crumb crutch, you know the picture of the ladder and the angels going up and down. That's the Bethel experience, the first Bethel experience. He has two. Okay, so he comes to Bethel and God speaks to him, and what does God tell him?
Okay? He promises him he's going to have descendants. What else does he promise him? Okay? He promises he's going to go with him. He's going to bless him. And he's going to come back with him. Okay? Now, when we remember that about Bethel, doesn't that sound a whole lot like what's happening here at Beersheba? Okay. And Bethel is that place, as we mentioned when we studied the passage there, Bethel is that place where Jacob was transformed from a fugitive to a pilgrim. He fled Beersheba. He was fleeing his brother. Everything was seen from a fleshly perspective. But when he gets to Bethel, it's all put in a spiritual context. And it becomes, instead of a, instead of a, a flight uh, from the anger of his brother, it becomes rather a pilgrimage towards the blessing and the promises of God. That's the first Bethel. Okay. But what is striking is how hard Jacob worked, even in the flesh, to try to secure the promises and the blessing and the inheritance, right? Jacob did everything he could to try to get this blessing and this promise and this inheritance that, was, that would have fallen, uh, uh, originally, uh, ideally, would have fallen to Esau. And Jacob has given everything he can give. And he's actually risked his life to try to get this promise. Okay? And then he has to flee and he goes up to Haran and uh, Peyton Aaron and, and you know the whole story in the 20 years there in Peyton Aaron and he comes back. So now he's back in this land of promise, this land that he had worked so hard to ensure would be for him and for his descendants. And now we come to near the end of his life. He's 130 years old, we will find. And he is leaving again. He's leaving this land of promise. He's leaving this land that he has struggled so hard, both in the flesh and in faith, <laughs> to acquire for himself and for his descendants. And now here he is at the end of his life. And he's leaving the land of promise. But unlike Bethel, where he just goes to Bethel and he says later about it, he says, I was clueless that God was here. <laughs> I had no idea God was here. And so he calls the place Bethel, the house of God. Unlike that, when he comes to Beersheba, he now knows the significance of this place. This is the southern door. When he walks out this door, he's leaving the land of promise. And he knows that God has promised him this land. For him and for his descendants. And he knows he's going to Egypt. And we'll talk in a minute about the implications of that. He knows that he's going into Egypt. But more significantly, he knows he's leaving this land of promise for which he has struggled so hard his whole life. And he's not going to do it without stopping to worship God. He's not going to do it without stopping to say, God, I'm only going to do this by faith. And so he stops at Beersheba, and we don't know how long he was there. I can't imagine how, knowing how badly he wanted to see Joseph, that he didn't stop for more than a day or two. But he stops at Beersheba and apparently offers sacrifices on the altar his father had built. And then he goes to bed. And in the night visions, God comes to him. Now, up till now, he, in, this, in this part of the story, he's been called Israel. Israel went up 
And Israel went to Beersheba and offered sacrifices. But God now comes to him in night visions and speaks to him. And what does God call him? Jacob. 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 Now, I can understand why people would call him Jacob. Because that's how we see him, right? We just see him as a man. That's how his children see him. They see him as a man. But God is the one who named him Israel. And so why does God, who named him Israel, call him Jacob? And I think the clue comes in what God says to him. What's the first thing God says to him? Okay, first he says, I am, I am El, Elohim of Isaac. I am mighty God, the God of your father Isaac. Okay, he identifies himself. He says, the God whom Isaac worshipped, whom Isaac served, the God who blessed your father Isaac, I am that God and now I'm talking to you. And then what's the next thing he says? Do not be afraid to go to Egypt. Now, why would God say that to Jacob? Well, if the point was to be in that land and you're leaving, then it seems like you missed, the, you missed it all. And, and as a father myself, I think about and there's a proverb that says a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. I think about that a lot and what I can pass down. You know, it's just physical stuff and sort of the spiritual side and financial side, all that stuff. And so he's probably thinking all about that. I'm <coughs> I want to pass this down to my family, but we're leaving. We're gone. And that's, that's a good deal of what he's thinking about. And my, my point is, God says that to Jacob because Jacob's afraid. And it is, to me, a tender thing that God calls him Jacob here. Because this is Israel. This is, the, this is the man who's wrestled with God and prevailed. This is the man who has been blessed of God and promised an inheritance and promised the land. He's been prom- so this is, the, this is the spiritual man, Israel. But God recognizes that in this spiritual man, Israel, there's still some Jacob left. And God comes in his grace and in his kindness and he speaks to the Jacob in Israel. And that's comforting to me. I've been doing a lot of prep work already for our upcoming study in the book of Romans. And, and of course, you're probably familiar enough with the book to know that, that Paul's pretty insistent upon what we are now in Christ in the book of Romans. But much of the conflict that comes in the book of Romans, and we'll study all this, of course, when we get to it, is that oftentimes we don't live like the kind of people that we are in Christ as believers. We are Israel, but we still have in us a lot of Jacob. And God comes to Israel at this moment of crisis in his life and addresses the Jacob in him. And he says to the Jacob in him, Jacob, do not fear. Because you really are Israel. 
And he goes on then to stipulate four promises to Jacob. He says, don't be afraid to go down to Egypt. Now, the question is, as I asked, why would Jacob, or indicated, why would Jacob be afraid to go to Egypt? And part of it is exactly uh, what Jim has indicated, is he's leaving the land of promise. But he also has some specific reasons to be apprehensive about Egypt. And what would those be? I would guess they're all the things that God promised. And those four things you mentioned, they are all tied up in there. He's leaving and he may never come back. And if I leave, is God going to go with me? Okay. Okay. And you're still focused on the leaving part, but I'm but I'm focused on the Egypt part. Worldly, I mean, Egypt is a world power. They say slaves. Okay. okay, but what is it in Jacob's personal experience that makes him apprehensive? In Jacob's personal world, what makes him apprehensive of Egypt? What was his grandfather's experience? Yeah, he, uh, Abraham screwed it up really bad. <laughs> He went down to Egypt, and when we talked about that in Genesis chapter 12, when we talked about Abraham going down into Egypt, uh, most commentators are agreement he should not have gone. That he was outside of the will of God, and he got down there, and he got in a mess, and he had to lie to Pharaoh about his wife, and then the Pharaoh found out, and he was mad, and he sent him away. Actually, he came out with his pockets full of gold, you know, so you know he made pretty good haul when he came out of Egypt. Uh, but, <clears throat> but it was not a pleasant situation. And then later in his father's life, in Isaac's life, there was also a period of famine. And Isaac was struggling to try and keep his family alive. And, and so he needed to make a decision about where to go to keep his family alive. And I believe it's in chapter 26 that God comes to him there in the early part of chapter 26. And God says to Isaac specifically, do not go to Egypt. So Abraham's father went to Egypt and had a pretty unpleasant experience. And Isaac is specifically warned by God not to go to Egypt. And then also we have that nagging prophecy that God gave to Abraham back in, was it chapter 15, when God says to Abraham, he says, now, he says, you're going to go, your, your descendants are going to go into a foreign land. Now, Egypt is not specifically mentioned, but it says your, your descendants are going to go into a foreign land and they're going to be there for 400 years and they're going to be mistreated, etc., etc., etc. Now, as I said, Egypt is not specifically mentioned in that, but that has to be in the back of Jacob's mind. So on one hand, he has Joseph down there, the son he loves, and, and he is driven, he's compelled by his love for Joseph to go to Egypt. But in the back of his mind, he has all this other stuff going on. And so the question is, can this thing really be of God? Well, of course, we know it is of God. We see how God has worked in order to save the family. And so God is, so we know that. But Jacob is still struggling with that. So he comes to Beersheba and he worships God and God comes to him in visions of the night. And God says to him, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. And then he gives them the four promises. And what are the four promises? Well, one of the fear, I guess, is he knows he's going to die. That, that would be something. 
Okay, he's, he's got a pretty good hunch this is it. Yeah, that he's going to die in Egypt. Because you notice he's taken everything with him. Yeah, yeah. So, so he, he knows this is a long-term deal and he knows he's an old man. So the chances are he's going to die down there. And then that becomes clarified apparently in the promises. But uh, so, so that's also a factor. So what are the four promises? Okay, the first one is, I'm going to make you a great nation. Now, he's told him that before, and he's saying it to him again. Don't worry about that, Jacob. Don't worry about that. We're going to do this. You're going to be a great nation. But where is it going to happen? In Egypt. He says, there. I'm going to do it there. Okay, so now it's very clear to Jacob. This is going to be a long... Because you don't make a great nation overnight. It happens over a period of generations. I've been thinking about that a lot. We often think in, in, our, in our day and in our time, we think in such short-term perspective. But most of us in this room have had children. And most of those children are going to have children. And most of those children are going to have children. And if the Lord tarries... You will become a great nation. Do you ever think about that? And it's not just true physically, but it's true spiritually as well. We tend to just see things, you know, our kids and our grandkids and maybe our great-grandkids, either physically or spiritually. But we don't see beyond that because we're, we're finite and, you know, we don't see beyond that. And I think also about the tragedy of abortion. We've, we've probably all thought many times, where would our country be today if the 53 million people we've killed in the last 39 years had been allowed to live? But it's not just those 53 million. It's their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren and their great-great-grandchildren and the nations that would come from them that have been snuffed out in our country in the last four decades. And we don't see that perspective very often, but when we listen to the voice of God, we see that perspective. And Jacob, listening to the voice of God here, hears that perspective. Jacob, all you're seeing right now is yourself and your sons and your grandsons and a few grandkids. That's all, great grandkids. That's all you're seeing. But I'm telling you, you're going to be a great nation. What's the second promise? I'm going with you. It's the same promise he made at Bethel, isn't it? I'm going with you. You're, le you're leaving the promised land, but the promiser is not leaving you. I'm going with you. Now, two or three hundred years later, that might have gotten a little hard to believe. But all those 400 years that those people were being mistreated and enslaved in Egypt, God was with them. You see, we, always, we, we tend to think God is with us when everything's going well, right? <laughs> when the bills are getting paid and the, and the kids are doing well and everybody's healthy and everything's, you know, everything we know, God is with me and God's blessing me. <laughs> But God was with Egypt, with God was with Israel in Egypt for four hundred years. 
And that's how he could say to Moses, I hear their cries at the burning bush. So the second promise is God is with him. What's the third promise? I will surely bring you back. Now, for Jacob, that meant coming back in a coffin, <laughs> right? Okay. So we'll read about that when we get to the end of Genesis. Okay. But what he's really, what God is really saying is, is this promise to the land? It holds, because <laughs> the promiser is going with you as you leave the land of promise, and the promiser will bring you back. And I'm going to bring you back as a great nation. And then the last promise is what? Okay. Joseph will close your eyes. What a tender picture. Yeah, I haven't been around a lot of death yet in my life. I've been around a little bit, not a lot of it. But, <clears throat> but you know, some people die and their eyes are still open. And the people who are with them, in kindness and in tenderness, even though the person has passed away, does what? Do what? They reach out and they just close their eyes. And the promise there to the promise there to Jacob is when you die, you will be looking at your family. You're going to be looking at Joseph. And he will be there when your spirit leaves and he will be the one to reach out and close your eyes. What a precious promise for him to hear after everything he's been through. Well, it's interesting there, Rick. I hadn't thought about the confirmation that God gives him. Because by, earlier he was by faith going to to see his son Joseph. And God's confirming, yes, Joseph is down there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah. He's there and, and you're going to see him and you're going to be with him when you die. So, Jacob gets up from Beersheba and he heads off to Egypt. And what does he take with him? Everything. Oh, by the way, did you notice that? Everything. And in addition to that, also, he's taking everything. See how he, he just beats it like a drum? <laughs> Particularly the part about the descendants. He's taking his, all his descendants. Oh, oh, did I mention his sons and his grandsons? Oh, yeah, and his daughters and his granddaughters. Oh, by the way, he's taking all of his descendants with him to Egypt. You'd think the narrator's trying to get a point across to us, right? Why is that so important? I kept praying this week, saying, God, why, why do you beat that drum? <laughs> What's so important about everything? Well, and it's not just all his descendants, but it's all his possessions. Why is he taking all of the possessions? Why does he emphasize his flocks and his herds and all that they had acquired in the land of Canaan? Because everything that they had acquired in the land of Canaan was the blessing of God according to the promise. Right? God had promised Abraham, God had promised Isaac, and God had promised Jacob. And he says, 
He said to all three of them, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to load you up, not just with descendants, but with material possessions. That was part of the promise. It was part of God's covenant promise to Jacob. And Jacob was not going to leave a single thing behind of what God had promised him. He's going to take it all with him. I may have to go to Egypt, but I don't have to go to Egypt without God's blessing on my life. And so he takes all of his possessions, but he takes all of his descendants as well. And and the importance of that is, of course, also because that's the blessing of God, that's the promise of God, that's that's the covenant promise of God to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so he's not going to leave a one of them behind because this is God's promise. But as we go forward into this genealogy and we begin to think on that, and we'll think a little bit of it here in the next few moments and then we'll talk more about it next week. Uh, But as we go forth into this genealogy, what we will understand is this genealogy is very important to the children of Israel in the wilderness. Okay, Remember, this book was first read by those people out there in the wilderness after Moses wrote it down. And they came to this chapter and they read this genealogy. And it may not mean much to you, but it meant a whole lot to them. Because God was going to bring a great nation out of Egypt. But every great nation starts where? Starts with just a handful. And we'll talk more about that concept next week. But but this list of names here is the seed of the great nation. And they've all got to go. If it's going to become one great nation, they've all got to hang together. They've all got to go together. As I thought about that today, or the last two days that I was thinking about that, I was just thinking, if the church of Jesus Christ is to become a great and powerful nation by which His glory will be declared to the nations, it's got to hang together. doesn't mean we all have to agree on everything, but we've got to find a way to walk as one with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We've just got to find a way to do it. And so, He takes them all and He goes to Egypt. And then the narrator gives us this list of names, which is a genealogy. And when we first started looking at genealogies in Genesis, we talked, uh, we talked about two kinds of genealogies. We talked about broad genealogies and deep genealogies. Okay? And broad genealogies are basically one generation, and it'll say, so-and-so had all these sons, or sons and daughters. Okay? And it's just one generation, but it's very broad. Okay? And then there are deep genealogies. And they go very deep. They go generation to generation to generation to generation to generation. Okay. And of these uh, deep genealogies, they are also broken down into two classifications. And they are the segmented and the linear. Okay. And the linear generation or the linear genealogies are so-and-so begets so-and-so who begets so-and-so who begets so-and-so, you know, like Matthew and Luke 
you know, it's it's one person beget one person who beget one person. Now we know they beget others, but we're only tracing one all the way down. Okay, that's a linear genealogy. Okay. But we also have what are called segmented genealogy. And segmented genealogy is kind of blend of the linear and the broad. Okay. A segmented genealogy gives you more breadth, but also goes very deep. Okay. This is a segmented genealogy here. Because this segmented genealogy goes very broad. It gives us all the descendants of Jacob, all, all his sons, and then all of their sons under them, and in some cases the sons under them, and in one or two cases their daughters. Okay. But it goes down three or four generations. Jacob, Jacob's sons, Jacob's uh, grandsons, and I think there's one or two cases of his great-grandsons. Okay? So it goes down three or four generations. So it's a segmented genealogy. And the point of a segmented genealogy is to show the connections between all these people. To show that they are interrelated. And the point of a segmented genealogy here in this case is to show us that all these people constitute the people of God. All these people are part of what God is doing. And so it's important that they all go. Now, there are some, uh, there are some particularly uh, important things that the narrator is trying to communicate. The least important of which is that they went with uh, Jacob to Egypt. And the reason I say that is because there are some people in this list who did not go with Jacob to Egypt. Or if they did, they only went in the sense of going in the loins of their fathers. Okay, So, for example, it talks about the sons of Perez. But we know from chapter 38 that Perez, born to Judah through Tamar, was born right before the removal from Canaan to Egypt. So he's just a little squirt. He doesn't have sons yet, but it lists those sons in this genealogy. Okay. Similarly, as we get to the part we're going to read next week, it lists the sons of Benjamin, ten of them. Okay, but uh, presumably Benjamin doesn't have any sons at this point. So they actually only go down to Egypt with Jacob in the sense that they go in the lines of their father. Okay, so there's something more important going on here in this genealogy than just that these are the people who actually physically traveled with Jacob to Egypt. And next week we'll explore what is the significance of that. What is God trying to tell us in that? But a couple things stand out to me. Uh, one thing, uh, it's just a little uh, tidbit, but I'll throw it out to you uh, because this question probably came up earlier and this helps to answer it a little bit. In verse 10, notice it names the guy by the name of Shaul, S-H-A-U-L, the son of a Canaanite woman. It's the only one it mentions as the son of a Canaanite woman. Well, actually, it's not the only one who's the son of a Canaanite woman because uh, Perez is the son of a Canaanite woman. He's the son of Tamar. Okay, but but what is significant here or appears to be significant is that most of these sons of Jacob are not married to Canaanite women. Now, you may have wondered about that because because it was very important for Abraham that Isaac not marry someone from the Canaanites. And it was very important to Isaac that Jacob not marry someone from the Canaanites, which is why they sent him back to Haran to get a wife from Haran. So the question then arose at the time, as we were talking about that, well, what about Jacob's sons? Where do they get their, their wives if they can't, you know, they, obviously the relationship is now broken when Jacob left Laban. The relationship between them was broken. So it was not likely that they were going to go back to, to Haran to get their wives, to get wives for his sons. So where did they get them? They didn't get them from the Canaanite women, but they could still get them from their relatives. 
relatives of Abraham are around from which these men might have gotten their wives. This is just tidbit information, not life-changing, but uh, some of you have this question, so I'm addressing it. Okay, Esau. There's Esau, and he's got descendants. Who else? Ishmael. He's got descendants all over the place, okay? And then, of course, there, uh, there's Abraham's second wife after Sarah died, Keturah. And she's got sons. So there's all kinds of descendants around now from Abraham who are not Canaanites from whom they could have gotten their wives. So, uh, so I think the significance there in verse 10 is that it alerts us to the fact that most of these other guys did not marry Canaanite women. And so presumably married uh, among their relatives. Okay. Who's that? Uh, well, uh, yeah, there is Lot, but they were they were pretty much uh, they are they are there. That's possibility. Lot. Some of those are pretty persona non grata because of Lot's history, but um, I didn't think about Lot. Uh, just one other thing I want to point out on this genealogy, and, and we'll quit. Obviously, it's important to God that the children of Israel in the wilderness be able to look back on their ancestors. And, and to some degree, their understanding of who they are is associated with who their ancestors were. And that's very important all the way through the Old Testament. Because the people of God up until Pentecost were, were a physical people. They were the descendants of Abraham, right? And, and so it was very important that they that their self-identity be shaped by who their ancestors were and what their ancestors did. But at Pentecost, all that changed. At Pentecost, the people of God are no longer this physical entity, the descendants of Abraham, but the people of God are what? It's the church, right? It's us Gentiles. Primarily, not exclusively, but it's all the nations. Okay? And who are our ancestors? Well, it's not so important who my physical great 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 grandfather is. That's not so important for my identity spiritually. What's important for my identity spiritually is who was my great great grandfather spiritually. Now, I don't mean by that, you know, who led me to Christ, you know, that type of thing. But what I'm trying to stress here is that if it was important for Israel to know their history, it's important for us as believers to know ours. If you don't know your church history, you need to learn it. Because it will help you understand who you are. It will help you understand why you believe what you believe and why what you believe is significant. And the price that people made, paid, to make sure that you would know the truth that you now believe. And so we look at these genealogies sometimes and we go, well, you know, I don't understand where that all fits. And I can understand how you might react that way because to you it's maybe not that important. But you have a spiritual genealogy. And that's the genealogy of the saints since Pentecost who have lived their lives sometimes well and sometimes not so well. And you and I as believers need to understand that so that we will understand who we are in the 21st century. Okay? Next week we'll pick up some more with the genealogy and go on to their arrival in Egypt.